turn in your Bibles this morning to the prophet Zechariah chapter 4. We're going to start at verse 6. I trust you'll find this message interest, as interesting this morning as I have in studying and preparing for it. A couple of days ago, I went down to my office with a cup of coffee in the morning uh, around 7.30, 8 o'clock. And I didn't leave my office until about 7 p.m. that night. The entire day I was in God's Word making preparation for this sermon. And that was, uh, I don't think I've ever done that before. So it was neat to, to get caught up in the Word of God and lose track of time to the point where I realized I needed to wrap up so I could go at least hang out with my wife and kids for a couple hours. So um, that's a blessed thing. But let's look at the prophet Zechariah this morning. I want you to uh, call to mind some of the messianic prophecies we talked about last week because we're going to get back into that. And then we're going to look at some characters uh, that were uh, illustrated for us this morning. Zechariah chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. And if you recall our study in Revelation chapter 11 on the anointed ones, the two witnesses that come in the last days, we cross-referenced this passage, did a study on it, but I want to revisit it. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace unto it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it. And thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you. For who hath despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven. They are the eyes of the Lord which run to and fro through the whole earth. If you'll recall, the prophet Zechariah wrote in the days after the remnant had returned from the Babylonian captivity, it was in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah when the second temple was built. The second temple paled in comparison to that of Solomon's temple. Some of the old men that were there in Ezra when the foundation was laid wept and cried because they remembered the glory of the first temple. Others, the younger people, rejoiced so that no one knew who was crying or who was rejoicing. Whether it was tears of sadness or tears of joy. Zerubbabel, the governor, was part of that. And it was thought, the foundation is laid. Will, will we ever get to raise the temple? There was much adversity. You see signs of that or you see examples of that in Nehemiah. The people there in the land persecuted the Jews and tried to stop them from completing this work that Cyrus the king and Persian kings later continued to give permission to do. And the prophet here is telling the people not to worry. This work that has begun, it'll be finished. This small man, Zerubbabel, who leads people back as a governor from Babylon, 
Before Him the mountains will become a plain, and the work that I have purposed will be completed. Not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit. And when these things took place, and we looked at Joshua the high priest in chapter 3 many, many months ago in our study in Revelation, and how it seemed that out of this remnant, how could God rebuild the nation? And prophecies were made concerning the branch, and we go forth to see other prophecies in Zechariah concerning Messiah. And these were days of small things that seemed insignificant. And yet, out of them come the very things that we've already talked about this morning. So I want you to ask yourself, should we despise days of small things? When what transpires in our lives or in our testimonies seems so insignificant and so unappealing or ineffective in the face of great evil and great darkness and the powers of this earth. God uses the days of small things. And when He does things, it's not by might, it's not by power, it's by His Spirit. Why? Because the eyes of the Lord are in every place. They run to and fro throughout the earth, seeking those that are willing to be used by Him. Last week we spoke about Messianic prophecy from the Hebrew Tanakh. The Hebrew Tanakh is the Old Testament. It's divided. It has three main divisions. The Torah, which are the books of Moses. The Nevi'im, which includes the former prophets and the latter prophets. The former prophets are Joshua Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings. And then the latter prophets would be um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and what's called the Twelve or the 12 minor prophets, Hosea through Malachi. And then you have the third division, which is called the Ketubim, the writings or the Psalms. This includes the poetic books, Psalms, Proverbs, and Job. It includes what's called in Hebrew the five mezulo or the five songs, the Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. And then the historical prophetic writings of Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and the Chronicles. So the Hebrew Bible begins with Genesis and ends with 2 Chronicles. Our Old Testament begins with Genesis and ends with Malachi. But the same 39 books in this Tanakh that the Jews claim are the Word of God are the same 39 books we believe to be the Word of God. Our order is a little different because it follows more of a chronological uh, unfolding. But it's the same Old Testament we believe is the Word of God. And most Jewish people that I have the privilege of speaking with, particularly young Israelis, Israeli backpackers and travelers and kiosk workers, are shocked to learn that Christians actually believe the Tanakh is the perfect, preserved Word of God. They think that we just follow the New Testament. And it's a shocking revelation to them. And it's shocking to see that we believe Jesus is the Messiah because the Tanakh, tells us exactly what Messiah will look like. And many of the prophecies we spoke about last week were in days of small things. When the prophets uttered those words, they didn't even know they were speaking about Messiah. And then these things would be fulfilled many, 
generations later. The word Tanakh is like an anagram. stands for Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketubim. But throughout all three divisions of the Hebrew Bible, Yeshua HaMashiach is revealed. If you go to Luke 24, when Jesus appears to his disciples at the end of Resurrection Sunday, after the two uh, uh, that were on the road to Emmaus ran back to Jerusalem to tell his disciples that they had seen him, Jesus appears. And then it says that he opened their understanding concerning the scriptures and that he showed that these things had to be fulfilled as was written in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms. Jesus himself acknowledged the three divisions of the Hebrew Bible and told us that he is revealed in every one of those divisions. In the Torah, the law of Moses, I gave you examples last week. In the prophets and also in the writings. There's a few interesting prophet, prophecies. Before I get into the main point of my message, I want to look at one from each of these sections. These prophecies were given in days of small things, but they pointed to a mighty plan of God that he would fulfill. Let's turn to the Torah, Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22, verse 8. This is Abraham being tested by God. I don't want to spend a lot of time going into the context. You know this story. God tells him to sacrifice Isaac. Abraham takes him to the mountains of Moriah, up to Mount Moriah. And as they're making their way up the mountain, Mount Moriah is where the temple would later be built. Today, the Dome of the Rock sits on top of Mount Moriah. The rock that's inside the Dome of the Rock is the top of the ancient Mount Moriah where Abraham offered up Isaac. You used to could go in there and see the rock. You can't do that anymore. But in Genesis chapter 22, verse 8, as they're climbing the mountain, Isaac notices that there's fire and wood and things for a sacrifice, but there is no sacrifice. There is no lamb for a burnt offering. And in Genesis chapter 22, verse 8, Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. Abraham told Isaac God would provide the offering. I don't know if he knew it or not, but Abraham uttered prophecy here. Not only would God provide an offering for himself in that situation, but ultimately God would provide himself as the offering. Here we have messianic prophecy that God himself would be the offering. He would be the offering. He would be that perfect Passover lamb. Now it's interesting because if you look at some modern versions of Scripture, including the ESV, be careful with that. It's not a Reformation Bible. These Reformed people that boast in the ESV don't even know they're not even reading a Reformation Bible. In Genesis 22.8 it says God will provide for Himself a lamb. Whereas our King James Bible prophesies of Messiah, God will provide himself the lamb. What's interesting is if you look at English Tanakhs, Hebrew Bibles published by Jewish publishing companies who do not believe that Jesus is Messiah, English translations of the Hebrew Tanakh 
you'll see that they read exactly like our King James Bible, retaining that prophecy. The 1917 Jewish publication, Society Bible, God will provide Himself a lamb. The 1936 Hebrew Publishing Company, Tanakh, in English, God will provide Himself a lamb. And then in 2011, the Orthodox Jewish Society published an English edition. God will provide Himself a lamb. You see, Messiah wasn't just the son of David. He wasn't just the son of Abraham. Messiah is God. And we have it right from the lips of Abraham. The Nevi'im is the prophets. It's filled with Messianic prophecy. We talked about this last week. It's filled with prophecies given in days of small things that were despised when they were given. Yet out of them was great truth that God would fulfill generations later. Turn to Amos chapter 8. This is part of what the Tanakh calls the 12, the 12 minor prophets. Amos chapter 8. Basically, I want to set the context at the beginning of chapter 8. Amos sees a vision, a basket of summer fruit, fruit that is overripe to the point of uselessness. And God is showing the prophet that Israel is ripe for judgment. And as we proceed through chapter 8, God makes it clear that He will not forget their sins. And that He will judge them. And as part of that judgment, there will be a point in time when the land trembles because of it. Look at chapter 8, verse 8. Shall not the land tremble for this, tremble because of God's judgment, and every one that dwelleth therein, and it shall rise up wholly as a flood, and it shall be cast out and drowned as by the flood of Egypt, and it shall come to pass in that day, in the day when the land trembles, saith the Lord God, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon, and I will darken the earth on the clear day, and I will turn your feast into mourning. And your songs into lamentations. And I will bring up sackcloth upon all loins. And baldness upon every head. And I will make it as the morning of an only son. And the end thereof as a bitter day. You see as God's judgment would fall upon Israel down through the years. There would come a day when the land would tremble. It was the 14th of Nisan. The month Nisan. The feast of Passover AD 30. There was a great earthquake in the land. And in the sixth hour, which was noon, the land was dark until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Yeshua, hanging on a cross, cursed of God, said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Then he gave up the ghost and said, Tetelestai, it is finished. And the, 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 the veil in the temple was rent in two. Amos prophesied of the earthquake and the darkness on the day of crucifixion, on a feast day when feasting would become mourning. But here's what's interesting. As you proceed on through the chapter, followed by this prophecy, God tells Israel He's going to send them a famine. Not a famine for food and water, but a famine for hearing and understanding the words of the Lord. When Jesus was crucified and the Jewish crowd said, His blood be upon us and our children. 
and the earthquake and the darkness crucified and rose from the dead, from that point forward, Israel as a nation has lacked the ability to understand who Messiah is. There has been a famine upon the nation down through the ages. Down through the ages. Paul says it this way, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Chapter 8 continues to detail that judgment will come. There will be what Daniel calls wars and desolations in chapter 9. But out of this, God would preserve a remnant. The sacrifice that Israel spurned is now their judgment. That's why God's standing on the altar. In chapter 9, verse 1, the altar was a place of sacrifice. But when that sacrifice is spurned, it becomes a place of judgment. The cross is a sacrifice, but if we reject it, it's our judgment. But God would preserve a remnant. And then it says in chapter 9, 11, and 12, that after all of this judgment, and after the sins of His people die by the sword, in that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen, and close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up the ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old, that they, the remnant, may possess the remnant of Edom and of all the heathen or Gentiles which are called by my name, saith the Lord, that doeth this. Paul said in Romans 11, until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in, and then or and so all Israel will be saved. God would preserve a remnant, and this remnant would be restored. And when it's restored, it will possess and finally appreciate the great multitude of Gentiles that had been called out for God's name as well, the church. One of the most important dispensational passages in all of Scripture is found in Acts chapter 15. And lo and behold, it's a quote of these verses from Amos chapter 9. At the Jerusalem council, they're debating whether the Holy Spirit had truly come upon the Gentiles and what should the relationship be between the Jewish believers and the new Gentile believers. The first Christians were Jews. The first pastors were Jews. The first church was Jewish. Every book in the New Testament was written by Jewish authors. But not long thereafter, God began to call up a, a, a remnant of Gentiles. And in this Jerusalem council, Simon Peter gave testimony of what happened there uh, at Caesarea with the Gentiles in Cornelius' house. Paul and Barnabas gave testimony of the things God had done on their first missionary journey. And then James, the half-brother of Jesus, spoke up. Acts chapter 15. Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Verse 14, Simeon or Simon Peter hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets. As it is written, after this, that is after God's called out a remnant of Gentiles, after God's called out the church, I will return and build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. And I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord who doeth all these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. You see, when God spoke through his prophet Amos, who wasn't a prophet at all, he's just a shepherd, a nobody, a picker of sycamore fruit, in a day of small things where he had the guts to go confront the wicked king of the northern kingdom. 
God laid out his entire plan for Israel's history. Judgment, a Mashiach that's rejected, a church in which Gentiles would be called out, and then a restoration of the house of David and the nation of Israel. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Such is the prophetic testimony, given in days of small things, not by might, not by power, but by God's Spirit. Only could these things happen. The third division of the Hebrew Tanakh are the writings. And I want to look at an interesting passage here as well, in which the one who spoke probably didn't even know he was prophesying of Messiah. Messiah was God from the lips of Abraham. Messiah um, would be crucified and he would, uh, an earthquake and darkness would accompany that on a feast day. Turn to Proverbs chapter 30. This is an interesting little chapter here in the book of Proverbs. It's written by a man named Agur, or Agur, the son of Jake. Nobody knows who he was. I know in chapter 30, verse 1, he identifies himself. And in verse 2, he says, I am more brutish than any man, and I have not the understanding of a man. He was an uneducated individual. He was just an average Job. Nothing special. He says in verse 3, I have neither learned wisdom, nor have the knowledge of the holy. He wasn't educated in the scriptures. He wasn't a scribe. He wasn't a religious leader. He wasn't a king. He was an average person. Yet, there was self-evident truth that even a brutish man knew to be true. Something so simple that even the most uneducated person could see it. Despite the fact that the, the, that, that the, the wealthy and the educated priests and scribes would miss it. In chapter 30, verse 4, he asks a series of rhetorical questions. When a rhetorical question is asked, the one asking it knows the answer. And he asks it to make a point. The point is the answer is obvious. As we say in Spanish, que obvio. Verse 4, even though this man was uneducated, he knew some things that all of us ought to know. And if we claim we don't, we have no excuse. Who hath ascended up into heaven or descended? Who hath gathered the wind in his fist? Who hath bound the waters in a garment? Who hath established all the ends of the earth? Even this man knew there was a God. I mean, come on. What is his name? And what is his son's name? If thou canst tell. Here we have an average man asking some rhetorical questions. That had obvious answers. There is a God. He has a name. And he has a son. You see my friends. God is not Allah. This garbage. That we share a common monotheism with Muslims. Is just that garbage. You see, the God of the Quran has no son. But the God we worship has a son. And that son has a name. And even this brutish man knew enough to know that there was a God who did all of these things and that he had a son. But here's what's interesting. 
All of these other questions have obvious answers that are not given here because we know what the answer is. The last question about the name of the Son of God is not so obvious. And so this man gives us the answer. I don't know if he even knew he was prophesying of the Messiah. What is his son's name, if thou canst tell? And then look at the very next two verses. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. The name of God's son is the word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory of the only begotten. No man hath seen God at any time. But the Son that dwells in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. John writes again in his first epistle, There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. What an amazing prophecy here that not only does God have a Son, but the Son's name is the Word of God. And therefore, the Son or the Mashiach is God. You see, when John wrote his words in John chapter 1 in the gospel and later in the first epistle, speaking of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, what he spoke was nothing new. It was no new doctrine. It was what had already been revealed in the Old Testament. And the Spirit of God gave him eyes to see. In a time of famine, famine, when most of those descendants of Abraham had been blinded because of their unbelief. Jesus Christ is all over the Old Testament. His name, details, 48 details concerning His life. And these things were given by those inspired by the Holy Ghost in days of small things. Who will despise such days? They were given not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit of the Lord. When I was told to bring the message to you all, these series of Sundays I was given an outline. The focus last week was to be Messianic prophecy, and the focus this week was to be preparation for Jesus Christ's birth as revealed in the Scriptures, highlighting the characters of Mary and Joseph. If we look at what's recorded there in Matthew chapter 1, 18 through 25 about Joseph, and Gabriel appearing to him in a dream and telling him not to fear but to take Mary to be his wife. If we look at the story of Mary in Luke chapter 1 when the angel appears to her and tells her that she will be, bring forth a son who would, be, who would sit upon the throne of his father David. And then she praises God with her Magnificat and we go and see her interactions with Elizabeth. These were days of small things. These were insignificant events it seemed in the lives of common people that those in authority, those in a power, wouldn't have any idea they'd even transpired. Little things and little corners of the land of Israel that would have gone unreported but for the Spirit of the Lord who recorded them for us. You're familiar with these things. We've read the Christmas story many times. I don't want to necessarily revisit it again, but as we think of days of small things, if we think, as we think about God working, not by power, not by might, but by His Spirit, we need to remember that the preparation for Jesus' birth far precedes the days in which the angel Gabriel appeared to Joseph and the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary. 
It involved many such days as this. Many days of small things where it could be said, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. In fact, the whole history of Israel and its preservation is such a miracle. Not by might, not by power. One of the greatest proofs that the Bible was not just written by Jewish people who wanted to preserve their history is the fact that the Bible, the Old Testament, is so critical of a stiff-necked and hard-hearted people that should have been erased from history. And yet God preserved them. Whoever records their own history and emphasizes the negative. It's a miracle. It's a modern-day miracle. The modern state of Israel is a modern-day miracle. It proves to us that the God of the Bible is real. But these things that happened... In Matthew 1 and Luke 1 and the things that were illustrated for us this morning, they were preceded by many such days of small things. I want you to turn to Matthew 1, but we're not going to look at the end of the chapter where Joseph interacts with the angel. We're going to look at the beginning of the chapter. I'm not going to read it, but in Matthew chapter 1, Verses 1 through 17, it says these words here. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then look in verse 16. And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Here we have in these verses the genealogy of our Lord and Savior via Joseph. This genealogy shows that Messiah, Jesus, had a legal claim to the line of David and that he truly was a son of Abraham. I love Matthew chapter 1 verse 1. It disproves very quickly and very clearly so many lies that rabbinic Judaism and the rabbis have told the Jewish people about Jesus and about the church and about the New Testament. You see, Jewish people are raised to believe by their wicked rabbis that the church is a Gentile institution, that Jesus is for the Gentiles, that the New Testament is an anti-Semitic book, that it teaches people how to persecute Jews, and that Jesus is not for us. But Matthew 1.1 puts all that to bed. Because the New Testament, the Barit Chadashah, prophesied in Jeremiah 31 begins with these words, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. Most Israelis don't have a clue that Christ is just a Greek word that means Mashiach. Mashiach, Messiah, is translated into Christ in Greek. Or Christos, which is Christ in English. It means anointed one, Mashiach. This is the book of the generation of Yeshua HaMashiach, the son of David, the son of Abraham. There's nothing anti-Semitic about that. This is a Jewish witness. A great way to witness or, or, or show a testimony from the New Testament to Jewish people and to create a curiosity that would pick up the book and read. When we look at this genealogy of Christ and we study its historic context and we dive into the Old Testament, we ought to be able to say exactly as Paul does in Ephesians 3. The Lord who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. And that's exactly what he did in preserving this messianic line. 
It's interesting in this genealogy, this speaks of those that begat those. These are direct paternal relationships that involve births. Don't involve father-in-laws and things like that. Begat. We see three sets of 14 generations here. It tells us that there were 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to Josiah, and the carrying away to Babylon, and 14 generations from Jeconiah or Jehoiachin, and the carrying away of Babylon to Jesus. That first set of 14 generations are the patriarchs. David's called a patriarch in Acts chapter 2. He was a patriarch and he was also a king. That second set are the sovereign kings. And then that third set took place during the vassal state when anybody that governed or ruled was just a vassal in the hands of a mighty empire. Israel had no independence. It was under the authority of the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans. Fourteen generations. But if we study Old Testament history... There were 17 kings. If there were 17 kings, how come only 14 generations are listed here? That's a contradiction according to many. They claim that Matthew, who's writing as a Jewish witness to Jewish people, couldn't even get the history right. And we've talked about this before and I don't want to go into it in too much detail. But when you look at the 17 kings, you can take three of them and put their reigns together and... Three reigns only lasted a total of six years. So there truly were 14 generations. But why are only 14 kings listed and not 17? Did you all get a copy of this uh, genealogy this morning? I'm going to have that passed out. Um, This is a genealogy based upon a putting together of what we're looking at here in Matthew and what we're going to look at in Luke a little bit later. But as you, I want you to uh, turn to the second page and you'll see this genealogy of Matthew traced down through David and the Solomon and Rehoboam. And then you see here a branch come out that includes Omri, the Omric dynasty, and Ahab and Jezebel. And then three names listed here in parentheses. These three names are omitted by Matthew and yet they were in this genealogy. Why were they admitted? Matthew's tracing the Abrahamic, the Davidic kingly line. And when we go back and study how the righteous king of the southern kingdom, Jehoshaphat, buddied up with the wicked king Ahab and was rebuked for it, we see those two lines merge for a time. And as a result, there are three kings there who have more the blood of wicked Ahab than they do the blood of David. And it took four generations to restore it. That's why those names were omitted. These were tainted by the blood of Ahab. And so from Joram, Matthew doesn't mention Ahaziah, Joash, and Amaziah. He goes straight to Uzziah. It wasn't until Uzziah. Uzziah was king in the year he died is when Isaiah saw his great vision of the Lord high and lifted up in Isaiah 6. It wasn't until Uzziah that the king was once again more the son of David than he was the son of Omri. But yet there were still 14 generations because three kings had reigned so short they only totaled six years. 
God knew exactly what He was doing when He wrote this genealogy. When we look at this genealogy, it's very interesting to me that there are five women mentioned in this Davidic bloodline. Normally, the Jewish genealogies wouldn't mention women. Luke gives a genealogy in chapter 3 that doesn't mention women. In the Chronicles, the women aren't mentioned except for one interesting exception that has to do very much with the passage we went, read from Zechariah 4. But it's interesting to look at these women and to see days of small things that God used to bring about Messiah. Not by might, not by power, but by His Spirit. Look at chapter 1 of Matthew verse 3. And Judas, or Judah, begat Pharaoh and Zerah of Tamar. We learn about this young Canaanite woman Tamar in Genesis chapter 38. Genesis chapter 38 took place over about a 20 year period from 1740 to 1720 BC. And we're told that Judah went down and took a Canaanite wife. And then he fathered three children very quickly. His oldest son Ur, Judah took a wife for him who was this... Canaanite woman, Tamar. But Ur was wicked and God slew him. It then became Judah's second son's responsibility to raise up seed for his dead brother. And so Judah's second son was given to Tamar to wife and raise up a seed, the biblical concept of leveret marriage. If we were to go back in time to a period where my wife and I had no children and Matthew was single. If I were to die according to leveret marriage, then Matthew would be required to marry my wife and their firstborn would be considered mine to raise up seed to me. And any other children they might have would be his. That was leveret marriage found in Deuteronomy. This second child of Judah had the responsibility, but he was wicked. He was to go in and raise up seed to his brother. And the Bible says that instead he spilled his seed on the ground. Wicked rebellion. God slew him. Well, the third son was young and Judah was like, wait a minute. We need to wait. This guy's young and I don't want him to be like his other brother. So he told Tamar, you need to go and be a widow for a while. When my third son is grown, then I'll give him to you to raise up children. But it became obvious to this young woman that that wouldn't happen. Judah's wife eventually died and he went to hang out with some of his Canaanite friends to be comforted. And so this Tamar, knowing she wouldn't be able to raise up seed and Judah's line would end, decided to disguise herself. And she disguised herself as a prostitute. And Judah saw this woman in the streets and decided, okay, my wife's dead, I'm sad, I'm just going to go visit a prostitute. He went in and did his business with her. She wanted payment and he said, I'll give you a flock, a lamb or a kid from the flock. And she said, well, you've got to leave something with me, collateral, so that I know you'll actually pay me. And when you send the payment, I'll give these things back to you. And it tells us that Judah left his signet, his bracelet, and his staff with her. Well, when he came later and sent the kid of the flock, this prostitute was there. 
not there anymore. And the people were like, there's not a prostitute here. There's not a harlot here. What do you mean? And he was very confused. And he went about his business. Well, it came out later that this Tamar was pregnant. And it seemed as if she had played the whore. And when Judah found out about it, he said, let her be burned with fire. That's wicked. And she came out and confronted him and said, my Lord, whoever owns this signet, whoever owns this bracelet and this staff, he's the man by whom I have played the whore. And then Judah so suddenly recognized that she had been more righteous than him. He had made a promise and he hadn't kept it. And she acted and risked her life to preserve his seed. When she gave birth to those children born out of wedlock, it was two twins, Perez and Zerah. And we see these here in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what's interesting, when you study the period of time that this happened, when Jacob went down to Laban to find a wife, he was very old. He was probably 77 years old when he fled and went to Laban and worked for him. He was old. And he took wives that were very young. Jacob was very femi. Jacob was very soft. Jacob was not like his brother Esau. He hung out with mommy. He was a mommy's boy. And when he finally got up his, off his rear end to go find a wife, he was probably 77 years old. Old. And so Jacob, being very old, had wives and had children at an old age. And it caused a lot of conflict. Judah, his fourth born child, by Leah, obviously reacted to this. And if we study the timeline and we study who went down to Egypt in Joseph's day, it becomes apparent that Judah, when he went and found a wife, was only about 16 years old. He decided he was going to do the opposite of what his father did. I'm not waiting till I'm 77. As soon as I'm able to produce kids, I'm going to get me a wife. He took a wife around age 16... And then immediately had children. His firstborn when he was 17. His second when he was 18. And by 19 or 20 he had had three children. And then he decided he would do the same thing with his children. So his firstborn was probably 15 years old when Tamar was given to him to wife. When he was wicked his secondborn was probably only 14 years old. When he was ordered to raise up children for his older brother. And then Tamar was forced to wait. And it's interesting what Judah says to her as to why she needs to wait. Turn to Genesis 38. Genesis 38, verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow at thy father's house till Shelah, my son, be grown. He would have probably been 13 or 14 at this time. For he said, lest peradventure he die also as his brethren did. So in other words, he needs to grow up. Because if I give him to you now, he's going to be just like his two brothers and he's going to end up being foolish and die. So these were obviously very young. And he wanted to do something different with his third son because he realized that their youth couldn't handle these things. But it became obvious to Tamar that Judah wasn't going to give her his son. And as a result, she did what she did. When we see 
Jacob taking his kindred down to Egypt. Judah takes not only the children of Tamar, but that those children have children. So Jacob actually has great-grandchildren when he goes down to Egypt, but only through Judah. There are no great-grandchildren with the other children. So these things happened when these men were very young. And yet through all of that youthful foolishness and out of it, a Canaanite woman showed herself to be more righteous and to act to preserve the line that God promised He would give through Jacob and his sons. And as a result, this Gentile became part of the lineage of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Days of small things. Not by, my, not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. Matthew chapter 1, verse 5 says, And Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab. Here we have another Gentile woman popping up. A Canaanite woman from the city of Jericho. You remember the story of the spies sent into Jericho in Joshua chapter 2? And their dealings with Rahab the prostitute? You wonder what they were doing in her house? Who knows? But let's look at Joshua chapter 6. She knew that the God of Israel was to be feared. She knew that God had given this land to His people. And she begged these spies to preserve her and her father and her brethren. Because she hid them from the king of Jericho and let them down through a window and let them escape. And the spies told her that they would preserve her. But she had to put a scarlet thread in her window so they, they could identify her when the city was sacked. If you don't put the thread there, it's not our problem if you get destroyed when we invade the city. But she obeyed by faith. The spies went back and made report to Joshua. And Joshua ensured that the family dwelling where the scarlet thread was hanging was preserved because of her role in preserving the, the, scry, uh, the, the, the spies. Jo Joshua 6 verse 21 and they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, and ox and sheep and ass, with the edge of the sword. But Joshua had said unto the two men that had spied out the country, Go into the harlot's house and bring out thence the woman and all that she has as ye swear unto her. And the young men, these spies were young men that were went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brethren and all that she had. She had no children. She had no husband. She was a prostitute. And they brought out all her kindred and left them without the camp of Israel. And they burnt the city with fire and all that was therein, only the silver and the gold and the vessels of brass and of iron, they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. And Joshua saved Rahab the harlot alive and her father's household, and all that she had, and she dwelleth in Israel even unto this day, because she hid the messengers which Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. This act of faith by a Gentile prostitute preserved her life. But here in the genealogy, we're told that she married one Salmon, and is in the lineage of our Lord and Jesus Christ. Now in Numbers 13, when 
Moses sent the spies into the land the first time. And they came back in unbelief. We're told that those who were sent in were tribal princes. They were uh, well-known, well-respected men in each tribe. They were tribal princes. So we, knew, we know that when spies went in the first time, they were princes. In 1 Chronicles chapter 2, we're told that Salmon himself was a prince at the time. We know the spies were very young. Salmon, the husband of Rahab, was one of the spies that went into the city and helped to preserve her. Very young at the time. He was a prince. It was natural that princes would go in. They had already done that in Numbers chapter 13. It's my belief that he was one of the spies. He would have been about 20 years old. And eventually, this prostitute that he helped to rescue, he married. And through his descendants would come Jesus the Christ. Now we're told here that... um, Back to Matthew 1. This Bible I'm not used to using. I never did find my other one. This is a good one, but it's harder. It takes longer for me to flip through it. Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab, and Boaz begat Obed of Ruth. You see, Salmon and Rahab were the father and mother of Boaz, the great man of Judah in the book of Ruth. What's interesting again is if you study the times and the the timelines and the historic context, Salmon would have been around 100 years old when he and Rahab fathered Boaz. See, God did a mighty thing with Abraham. It wasn't the only time he did it in the lineage of Jesus Christ. He did it again here. Boaz would have been born around 1371 B.C. And like Abraham, with Abraham, God did a mighty thing in the lineage of Christ. He gave seed to a very old man. An old man that had been born during the wilderness wanderings. His parents probably died in the wilderness. And one who was part of bringing, coming into the land under Joshua and who lived the days of the elders of Joshua into the time of the judges. God did an amazing thing. It tells us that Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab and then Boaz begat Obed of Ruth, our third woman in Christ's genealogy. This brings us to the book of Ruth. Now Ruth follows Joshua and Judges in our Bible, but Ruth is part of the writings. It comes toward the end of the Hebrew Bible. Same 39 books, just a different order. And our order here is interesting because at the end of the book of Judges, We have two stories that involve a small, insignificant city called Bethlehem or Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And then we have the book of Ruth that follows Judges in our Old Testament. It is centered around a little town called Bethlehem or Bethlehem in the tribe of Judah. So from Judges 17 to the end of the book of Ruth, In the order of our Old Testament, we have what's called the Bethlehem Trilogy. Three stories involving Bethlehem. In Judges 17 and 18, we have the story of the Danite migration. They didn't like the land they'd been given. They decided to relocate. 
They took this Levite from Bethlehem, Judah, and made him their priest. Lots of idolatry and wickedness that happened about 50 years after Jericho. In Judges 17 through 19, we have a, a Levite from Bethlehem, Judah, who has a concubine, and he stops in a little town called Gibeah in the land of Benjamin. And the people of the town rape his concubine and leave her at the door dead. He decides to uh, get revenge, and so he cuts her body up and mails pieces of her to all the different tribes. About Look at what is happening in Gibeah in the land of Benjamin. Benjamin and all the other tribes get angry, and they go to Shiloh when Phinehas is still the priest. He's the one that got angry when uh, the people of Israel were playing the whoredoms with Midian because of Balaam. And he's the one that went out and stuck a spear or a javelin through a Jewish man that took a Midianite prostitute into his tent right in front of all the people when they were mourning over God's judgment. So this is very early in the period of the judges. Phinehas would have been an old man. But we have this civil war where the other tribes decide to exact vengeance on this town and Benjamin says, no, you're not going to come in here. And they have this terrible civil war that almost eradicates the tribe of Benjamin. And as a result, the rest of the people do some really wicked things to make sure that Benjamin is able to preserve seed by making sure those that survive that civil war have wives. And the very last thing we're told at the end of all this madness at the end of Judges, is that in those days there was no king in Israel. And every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And Bethlehem, Judah had been the focus of all that. Bethlehem? Can anything good come out of that? Wickedness. But God's not done with Bethlehem. We go to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth takes place over about an 11 to 12 year period. Around 1282 B.C. Involving a man named Boaz who consequently would have been very old. I wrote a little something about Ruth and Bethlehem Judah back right before our presidential election. I think it's worth reading again. Kind of sums up the point I'm trying to make here about days of small things. These dark days in America mirror the dark and evil days of the judges in ancient Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And in these days particularly, there was some really wicked stuff that came out of a little town called Bethlehem in the land of Judah. But even in all this apostasy, the Lord was still working in the small things of the world and the things which are not to bring to naught the things that are. 1 Corinthians 1.28 Seemingly insignificant acts of righteousness and faithfulness from the hearts and hands of seemingly insignificant people in a nation that seemed utterly lost and unfixable, these little things mightily came out of Bethlehem, Judah. So did that which was good and honorable in the sight of the Lord. And that tiny bit of good before the Lord ultimately overtook the swath of evil and apostasy in terms of the nation's survival in this city's place in human history. Had it, been, had it not been for someone shining a little light in the darkness the city of Bethlehem would not be known as it is these days to virtually the entire world. Don't lose heart, my brethren. All may not be lost in America, regardless of what happens on November 8th. Of course, now we know what happened was not what was expected. Swaths of evil fan out from this country, but perhaps some unknown acts of seemingly insignificant righteousness, acts that honor the God of the Bible, 
are already at work to mightily affect the course of future events and cause our nation to be remembered for good and not for evil. Be content to shine as a city upon a hill, as a light in the darkness, nothing more and nothing less. And as Naomi told Ruth, sit still, my daughter, until thou know how the matter will fall. So Boaz took Ruth, and she was his wife. And when he went in unto her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bare a son. And the women said unto Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, which hath not left thee in this day without a kinsman, that his name may be famous in Israel. And he shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life, and a nourisher of thine old age, for thy daughter-in-law, which loveth thee, which is better to thee than seven sons, hath borne him. And Naomi took the child and laid it in her bosom and became a nurse unto it. And the women, her neighbors, neighbors gave it a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed. Obed, he is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Ruth four thirteen through 17. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost, and she shall bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Matthew 1, 20 and 21. In dark, dark days, a seemingly insignificant act of righteousness resulted in a nation being remembered for good and not for evil. You all know the story of Ruth. Boaz was the kinsman redeemer. Naomi's husband died. Her two sons died. Their wives were from Moab, Gentiles. Ruth decided to stay with her. And it appeared as if her line had ended. But they discovered that there was a kinsman from Naomi's family that could play the part of the kinsman redeemer. And she began to hang out with Boaz. And she went in and laid at his feet one night in the when he was winnowing the barley and he awoke and was startled and <clears throat> told her that I'm willing to, to do this but there's a kinsman closer than I and they went to see if the other kinsman wanted to take her and he didn't want to. So everything worked out and Boaz took this woman to raise up seed to her first husband. Now, again, Leveret marriage, as it's called in Deuteronomy, or as it's spoken about in Deuteronomy chapter 25. It's interesting to me that when Boaz awakes to find Ruth at his feet, he says something to her that we often overlook. And it makes a lot of sense when we look at the timeline. In Ruth chapter 3, verse 10, he awakes and says, sees it's Ruth, the handmaid, or, or the, the daughter-in-law of of Naomi, he had allowed her to glean in his fields and told his workers not to mess with her, let her take as much as she wants. He felt pity for Naomi and her situation. But when he awoke, he said, Blessed be thou the Lord, my daughter, not my sister, my daughter, for thou hast showed more kindness in the latter end than at the beginning, inasmuch as thou followest not young men, whether poor or rich. He was shocked because... This is a young maiden who is at his feet. When it, why, why isn't she out pursuing young men? So obviously Boaz was very old. And he was shocked that this maiden would come to him. 
If we look at the, the chronology here, like Salmon, who was around 100 years old when Boaz was born, Boaz would have been around 100, year old, 100 years old when Ruth gave birth to Obed. He was an old man. He was a very wealthy man. He was a respected man. He may have been Naomi's husband's brother. And the reason why there was a closer kinsman than him is because he was of an older generation. And there was a young man that it made sense for him to take Ruth. And they had to trust the Lord with it, but it turned out the young man didn't want, want to do it. He had his own affairs. And so Boaz, being an old man, took this young maiden to raise up kindred to her husband, a younger generation. That's what made him righteous. An old man did what was right. When you look at the end of Ruth and we see this little genealogy here and we, we, we look at the, the, the history in terms of David and his kingdom and Solomon and dates that we know that are confirmed by secular history and archaeology, we see a genealogy here at the end of Ruth. Now these are the generations of Pharaz. Pharaz was the child of Judah and Tamar. Pharez begat Hezron. Hezron was Jacob's great-grandchild that went down into Egypt. Hezron begat Ram. Ram begot Amenadab. Amenadab begat Nashon. Nashon begat Salmon, one of the spies. Salmon begat Boaz. Boaz begat Obed. Obed begat Jesse. And Jesse begat David. Exactly what's recorded here in Matthew chapter 1. But... From the birth of Pharaz, which would have been about 1705 B.C. to the birth of David, 1085 B.C., this genealogy covers 620 years. 620 years. That means that not only was Salmon about 100 years old when Boaz was born, Boaz would have been close to 100 years old when Obed was born, Obed would have been almost 100 years old. When Jesse was born, Jesse was probably 85 or 86 years old when David was born. So we have a genealogy that you have young men getting married very young and making some very stupid mistakes. And then in the family tree, we decide to not make those same mistakes. And so we're going to put it off and they don't get married till very old. What God did with Abraham, he did at least four more times in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The chronology proves it. He doesn't need to give us the details. Lots of days of small things in which God accomplished his purposes, not by might, not by power, but by his spirit. In Matthew chapter 1, as we continue to go down through the genealogy, in verse 6, we're told Obed, uh, Boaz begat Obed of Ruth. Okay, there's the third Gentile woman in this genealogy. And then Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David the king. And David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias. 
This is the fourth woman mentioned in this genealogy, Bathsheba. We all know the story from 2 Samuel 11 and 12. This would have happened around 1045 B.C. David did a wicked thing. Nathan the prophet came and said, Thou art the man. And instead of making excuses, David saw his sin. And in an act of repentance, he gave us Psalm 51. David's was punished in his life, but God forgave his sin and he used it to continue the messianic line. You see, Messiah didn't come through any of David's other wives. It came through Bathsheba, the one with, with, with whom he had sinned. Out of sin, God brought something good. But did you know that Solomon wasn't the only child that David had by Bathsheba? There were three others. In 1 Chronicles chapter 3, we're, we're told there were four. Obviously, one of those was the one that died, that didn't survive as a result of that, that adulterous act. But there were three others. One was Solomon, and one of the other three was a man named Nathan. And when we look at chapter 3, it's through Nathan that we get Mary, the mother of Jesus. So both Joseph and Mary's lines come through David and they come through Bathsheba, the one with which he committed an act of adultery. But out of that, God brought good. Not by might, not by power, but by His Spirit. Days of small things. And then we get to the end of the genealogy and Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. As we go and read the testimony of Mary in Luke chapter 1, she was a handmaiden of low estate. She was unknown, unimportant. The last person on earth you would have thought God would have used. And she knew it. Why do you regard me, a woman of low estate? This would have been about 4 B.C. But we know that Mary was a cousin to Elizabeth. I don't know exactly how, but they were cousins. Elizabeth was married to a priest, Zacharias, of the tribe of Levi. And we're told that Elizabeth herself was a daughter of Aaron. You see, Zacharias and Elizabeth were from the tribe of Levi, the priestly line. And yet Mary was of the tribe of Judah. Somehow they were related. So in this seemingly insignificant maiden of low estate, the line of the kings of Israel and the line of the priests, they crossed. And Messiah, the king of Israel, the priest king, would be born. Mary rejoiced in God her Savior when she discovered this news proving that she saw and knew herself to be a sinner in need of a Savior. She was not without sin. She was not born of a virgin. This is all Catholic pagan mythology. She was a handmaiden of low estate that God used in days of seemingly small things to do a mighty work, not by might, not by power, but by His Spirit. I want you to bear with me just a few minutes. I'm not going to be able to finish, but it's going to transition very nicely into next week when we talk about the shepherds. 
We've talked about five different women that appear in this genealogy from which we can learn a lot about a God who was at work in days of small things. But let's back up because there's a man in here we need to look at for a moment. Verses 11 and 12. Josias, righteous king Josiah, begat Jeconias. He's called Coniah or Jehoiachin also in the Old Testament. Jeconias and his brethren about the time they were carried to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconias begat Salathiel, and Salathiel begat Zerubbabel. That brings us back to Zechariah 4. But this Jehoiachin is interesting. He was the grandson of King Josiah that Josiah elevated to the place of one of his sons. It's told us in the Chronicles that Jehoiachin or Jeconias was eight years old when he was appointed king. But the kings tell us he was 18 years old. You see, Josiah made provision for his grandson to be king because in him he saw some use and some righteousness. But when Josiah died at an early age, the people of the land said, we don't want to follow the will of our king. They took his other son, Jehoahaz, who was wicked and made him king. He stirred up some trouble with Pharaoh Necho, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh Necho came in there, deposed Jehoahaz, and put Josiah's other son, Jehoiakim, who was the father of the grandchild Josiah wanted on the throne. Jehoiakim was wicked. He allied himself with the Pharaoh of Egypt. When the Babylonians came and defeated Egypt at the Battle of Carchemish in AD 605, Jehoiakim realized, well, I'm probably better side with the Babylonians because uh, I'm going to be in trouble if I don't. So he switched allegiances and then Nebuchadnezzar took tribute of him and tolerated him for a little bit. But then he went back and sided with the Egyptians and betrayed Nebuchadnezzar. And so Nebuchadnezzar came back and decided he was going to teach this wicked traitor a lesson. And he besieged the city in 598. And while the city was besieged, Jehoiakim died and his body was tossed over the wall. And the people finally made king the one that Josiah wanted to be king in the first place. And that would have been 10 years later when he was 18. So both of those accounts are right. One tells us when God recognized him as king and one tells him, or when his father and God recognized him as king, one tells him when the men and people of the city did. But Jehoiachin only sat on the throne for about three months because he was taken captive to Babylon. And when he went to Babylon, he wasn't killed like his uncle that Nebuchadnezzar put on the throne after that, Zedekiah. He was thrown in prison. And this Jeconiah spent 37 years in prison in Babylon. And then it tells us that one of the Babylonian kings, Evil Merodach, it's at the end of the book of 2 Kings, brought Jeconias out of prison, restored him and gave him a place at his own table and treated him well until the end of his life. He never went back to the land, but he was treated kindly by the king of Babylon and given a place at his table. A seemingly insignificant event there at the end of 2 Kings. But a mighty event that ensured the continuity of the Messianic line. In these days of Jeconiah, some very strange things happened. Very strange things. I won't be able to get into them. 
today. But turn to the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 22. We have an interesting prophecy regarding this Jeconias. The history is such that Jehoiakim, the father of Jeconias, kissed up to Nebuchadnezzar after he defeated the Egyptians in 605 B.C. And then he sat on the throne and paid tribute. But when Nebuchadnezzar tried to invade Egypt some years later and failed, Jehoiakim thought, well, maybe this Nebuchadnezzar isn't so powerful. I'm going to go back and side with the king of Egypt and support them. And then that's when the king of Babylon came and said, "Uh uh-uh, and besieged the city. (laughs) Jeremiah 22 Verses 24 through 30. This is a prophecy concerning Coniah or Jeconias, the same man in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. As I live, saith the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet upon my right hand, yet I would pluck thee thence. And I will give thee into the hand of him that seek thy life, and into the hand of them whose face thou fearest, even to the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon and into the hand of the Chaldeans, and I will cast thee out, and thy mother that bare thee, into another country where ye were not born, and there shall ye die. He was taken captive after sitting on the front throne for three months, and sat in a Babylonian prison for 37 years, and then he was brought out and given a place at the king's table, and he died in another country where he was not born. But to the land whereunto they desire to return, thither shall they not return. Is this man, Coniah, a despised, broken idol? Is he a vessel wherein is no pleasure? Wherefore are they cast out, he and his seed, and are cast into a land which they know not? O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days. For no man of his seed shall prosper sitting upon the throne of David. And ruling anymore in Judah. So this king who's in the line of Christ is told that he may as well be childless. Because none of his seed would ever prosper on the throne of David. Well Jesus is his seed. And Jesus will prosper on the throne of David. So how can these two things be true? If you go on to Jeremiah 36... We have a prophecy written against Jeconias' father, Jehoiakim, who's also here in this Davidic line. Jeremiah 36, verse 30. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have none to sit upon the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out in the day to the heat, and in the night to the frost. Jehoiakim died while the city was under siege, and the people cast his body over the wall out. The Babylonians. But it says here that even he would have none to sit upon the throne of David. Jehoiachin sat upon the throne for three months, but he was just a vassal king. So when you look at these prophecies regarding this man, they make it necessary that Jesus be linked to David genetically through another branch. Jesus couldn't only be linked to David through Matthew chapter 1. There has to be another branch that links him to David. 
Matthew 1 gives him the legal right in the eyes of the people of Israel. But God said the legal heirs of these wicked kings would not prosper. So Jesus also has to have a genetic right. A genetic right. There has to be another branch. Turn to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, verse 23. And Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age. Being as was supposed, in other words, as was thought, the son of Joseph. He wasn't the son of Joseph. He wasn't born of Joseph. None of Joseph's bloodline came into Jesus. But everybody supposed he was the son of Joseph. In fact, in that community, the Pharisees later accused Jesus when he said, you're of your father the devil. They said... We're not like you. We're not born of fornication. They just assumed Jesus had been a result of premarital sex between Joseph and Mary or the product of adultery or that Mary had committed adultery and that Joseph just took her to be his wife and the people just considered Jesus to be a child of fornication. That's not the case of all. Jesus wasn't the son of Joseph. He was the son of God through Mary, conceived of the Holy Ghost. Being as was supposed the son of Joseph, which was the son of Heli. Now we have a problem here, it seems, because Matthew tells us Joseph's father was Jacob. But yet we're told here by Luke that his father was Mary, but that he was only supposed, I mean his father was Heli, but that he was only supposed by the people to be the son of Joseph. What we have here is not Joseph's, genealogy. This is Mary's. Joseph is the son-in-law of Heli. In fact, there's at least three son-in-laws mentioned in this genealogy that goes back through David via his son Nathan who was also born of Bathsheba. It goes not just back to Abraham. This genealogy, if you read on through the end uh, of the chapter goes all the way back to Adam. The second Adam's lineage is traced back 77 generations to the first Adam. From Jesus through Mary all the way back to Adam which was the son of God. Now when you put the two genealogies together they share some names as would be expected. They share the name of Abraham They share the name of David, but there's two other names that they also share that I find very interesting. And this brings us full circle right back to Zechariah 4, where the main character there being addressed was a man named Zerubbabel. Both of these genealogies also share two names, Salathiel, which was the father of Zerubbabel. A lot of people have looked at these two genealogies and said, well, these are just different people. It was quite customary in Jewish custom to look at great events in Israel's history and to name your children in successive generations after those events. I mean, we have in Joseph's line, Joseph's dad's name was Jacob, and Jacob named his son Joseph, just like Jacob the patriarch had a son named Joseph. That was common. So this could have been a Salafiel and a Zerubbabel that 
where fathers and mothers just wanted to name their children after famous people from the time when Israel came back after Babylon. So maybe these were different people that just shared common names. But when you look a little closer, I don't think so. I think the Salathiel and the Zerubbabel in Matthew chapter 1 are the same two that appear in Luke chapter 3. And when we see that Luke's already listed one son-in-law, we see that not only did the genealogy of Jesus Christ from David through Solomon and David through Nathan intersect at the Messiah, it also intersected at one of the great uh, types of Messiah that we see in the Old Testament, the Zerubbabel we read about this morning. When God does things, He does them consistent. And shadows always point to ultimate fulfillments. I'm not going to continue anymore today. Next week I want to look at, I didn't even get to the whiteboard. Next week I want to look at these genealogies. I just want you to take it and kind of look at what's happening here and see if you've got any idea of where this is going. There were a lot of miracles that took place in this genealogy that the scripture doesn't declare openly. But if we dig a little deeper, Mary being conceived of the Holy Ghost, the ultimate miracle, the incarnation of the Godhead, the greatest miracle of all was preceded by many, many miracles. Many days of small things. Many days in which the lineage hung by a thread. But it was preserved not by might, not by power, but by God's Spirit. And this Zerubbabel in in, uh, Zechariah chapter 4 plays a key part in that. We'll get into that next week. Look over these genealogies and it's going to take us right into the shepherds. Who they were and why the angels appeared to them and not someone else. Turn to 1 Corinthians 1. I want to leave you with this today. Maybe you're totally confused. Maybe you wonder what's going on. But out of all of this history, I hope that you've learned one thing. And though your life seems insignificant, though it seems as if you can do nothing in all the darkness, I want you to remember what Paul says to the Corinthian church here. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 26, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh... Not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Hundred year old men having children. Prostitutes doing righteous acts. Father-in-laws stepping up and taking care of their son-in-laws. God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the wise. Gentile women of obscurity. To confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world and things which are despised. Youthful young men running out as soon as they're able and getting married at 16 years old. Things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not. Old men that should be well past the age of bearing children. To bring to naught things that are. Why? that no flesh should glory in His presence. But of Him are you also 
are ye also in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. When Mary got the news, she gloried in the Lord. May we as well glory in the Lord. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. Who has despised the day of small things? Only a fool.